Faith Rogers, host of today's program, COVID-19, Keeping Up with the Moving Target. This is the April 29th update of DKB Med Radio's Coronavirus Educational Series. Thank you for joining us. As a reminder, we are now providing twice weekly 15-minute webcasts and podcasts featuring the latest news, treatment updates, and clinical considerations, as well as answering your questions about COVID-19. These will be available on Wednesday evening and Friday morning. Sign up at covid19.dkbmed.com to be sure you get the latest updates. Today's program is accredited for ANCC and AMA PRA Category 1 credits. Please visit our website for complete CME and CE information. To test for CME and CE credit, please visit covid19.dkbmed.com. There you will also find all of our previous COVID-19 programs and have access to other free CME and CE programs on a range of topics. The learning objectives today are, describe the natural history of COVID-19 illness, discuss risks, management, and precautions associated with COVID-19, and discuss status of antibody testing. And with us today, we have Dr. Allwater, Clinical Director of the Division of Infectious Disease at Johns Hopkins School of Medicine. Dr. Allwater, thank you for joining us. Thank you, Faith. And I want to remind everyone that this program is only brought about through the generous support of DKB Med, the Postgraduate Institute of Medicine, and also the Institute for Johns Hopkins Nursing. Additional CME uh, and educational resources you can find at covid19.dkbmed.com. As we are now past our fourth month of knowing about the novel coronavirus, the landscape in the United States has certainly uh, changed dramatically. Always first in urban centers, uh, some areas may be past peak, People who model this infection say that others will not occur until late June, especially in more rural and Midwestern locations. So I think this results in some difficult messaging uh, as a country, we also have competing federal and state governments in terms of trying to help give best advisory patterns and recommendations. So I think this is something where as you talk to your patients and advise them, uh, you really have to uh, sort through a lot of information, I believe, to give advice. Some new issues that have come about in the past week have included the Centers for Disease Control updating their symptoms that might be typical of COVID-19. Uh, pretty much from the start, uh, people are quite familiar with their respiratory illness, with fever, cough, and any kind of difficulty breathing that may be up to two weeks after exposure. At this point in time with community spread, I don't think the time frame is particularly helpful. However, what's been added now are other symptoms that really are consistent with a flu-like illness, which probably most have been screening for at any rate, including chills or shaking chills, myalgia, headache, and then uh, signs of upper respiratory illness, such as a sore throat, although uh, some have also described, of course, a kind of a runny nose and sinus congestion. It's probably not as frequent as we see with influenza. Uh, not unique to this virus, but probably much more common, is a new loss of taste or smell, which uh, 
go hand in hand, and we've certainly seen that in patients in Baltimore. And uh, I think it's something that I, I've even had patients well aware of from news reports that tip them off that they may be concerned that they're having evolving coronavirus infection. One of the reasons for rapid spread has continued to be the debate about whether there's airborne or aerosolization of the virus versus droplet. But uh, weighing in on the asymptomatic shedding side of the equation is some information that was published recently in the New England Journal from a nursing home, which as you might think about any kind of high density environment with people at risk for infection, this is quite concerning and similar to what may have been happening even in cruise ships and so on. But this uh, report here found that after the first resident was diagnosed with COVID-19, two-thirds of patients became infected, interestingly. And of course, this was before there was as much awareness and organization for infection control. But probably the real take-home point here is that over half of people at the time that the whole nursing facility was evaluated were without symptoms at the time that they had viral RNA measured on swabs from their nasopharynx. And so from this uh, time frame, they were able to determine this higher density environment that the doubling time of infection was only about three and a half days, which was certainly shorter than in the community and very high copy numbers of the virus were found, which again, I think speaks to how uh, this virus could spread very rapidly. And we sort of see this on a much grander scale, of course, in the New York metropolitan area. Uh, many people feel that the sheer density of people probably has contributed along with public transportation and so on. The fatality rate here in this home with older residents was very much the same as uh, seen in the intensive care unit with a fatality rate of about 26%. And about 20% of staff, even despite taking a PPE and so on, still tested positive. So the conclusion here that it was asymptomatic shedding rather than some kind of aerosolization that probably contributed to this, but that debate is ongoing. As I've mentioned, that whole aspect of asymptomatic shedding may speak also to seroprevalence studies. And there is great debate, which we'll launch into momentarily, about uh, how accurate antibody testing is for COVID-19. But I think the real important part from some um, releases, both from the uh, Public Health Department in LA and also New York City, is that a substantial number of people have been noted to be seropositive for uh, COVID-19, even if there is some cross-reaction and false positives. But what I wanted to get to is if you look at New York City, where almost 20% of their sample size was positive and a near a similar number in the suburb on Long Island, but upstate New York, where there are fewer confirmed cases, it's only 4%. So you get the idea that indeed there are no doubt significant amounts of asymptomatic infection. No one knows these precise numbers, but estimates are 25 to 50% or even more may not have uh, symptoms that would identify them as being ill. So I think when people don't know they're ill, this is no doubt a big magnifier. But 
many people have looked to antibodies as sort of armor. That is, once you've had the infection, that you really can then go about your business and and feel that uh, you won't be reinfected or expose other people. I think that's probably true if you've had confirmed COVID-19, at least for the first couple of years until we learn more about the durability of immunity there, which is probably both antibody and cell-mediated. However, the problem when people don't know they had COVID-19 and they're asking for antibody testing, uh, this concept of immunity passports, which I think was popularized by several European countries, including the UK, as a, a mechanism to get people back to work and so on and so forth. The key point here is that testing accuracy yet is not evolved to the point where we can guarantee sufficient uh, safety that a positive result truly means that someone won't acquire or spread the virus. And I think this is fundamentally important. And as you talk to patients or uh, patients ask you to have the test, I will tell you, I am very hesitant to order the test for people because I think it can be, give them a false impression. And I'll tell you why. This report, it's just a preprint. It hasn't been um, peer reviewed, but it's a very legitimate group of scientists that have looked at a lot of tests, which as you know, the FDA had quite liberalized uh, the ability to uh, manufacture and issue new commercial tests for COVID without a lot of testing other than analytical testing initially. Um, compared here, 12 different antibody assays and the top level news I would tell you is that only two kits did a good job with the STARS at actually identifying accurately samples from confirmed COVID positive patients. And you can see them there. On the other hand, the false positive rates were about 5% on average with these assays and some uh, of the more poorly performing ones had false positive ranges in 11 to 16%. I don't think this is yet an acceptable range to allow these kinds of tests to really stand as immunity protective tests. And we may get to this point in the next few months, tests may be further validated and checked to see if there's neutralizing antibodies, but it's also true that cell-mediated immunity, which is much more difficult to check, is also responsible. But you can see here in this checkerboard pattern, there's also very poor agreement among the tests, which tells you that there's a fair amount of uh, variability there. So I would be very careful if the test is ordered. I think you want to ask the laboratory which one they're ordering. Uh, try to see what kind of clinical data is present. Has it been validated against known samples of COVID positive patients against known negatives? Actually, uh, it's also be wonderful to check it against people that have had other coronavirus infections, although that's a much harder sample to analyze, all in an effort to see if it's truly accurate of COVID-19 seropositivity, because we know coronavirus uh, immunity, even that is not terribly cross-protective, if at all, uh, but can cause uh, false positive testing. So first uh, warning there. And then moving to therapeutics, this gives you an idea, at least uh, as of last week, very nice graphic on what we sort of know to date from studies uh, that have either been 
published or in preprint, as you can see, and there's many, many more, I think over 500 trials at a minimum that I've seen listed that are in various stages of conception or progress. But at the moment, we still don't have clear insights on any drugs that are very helpful, despite what I think is really a, a shotgun process initially for trying so many different strategies, uh, which I think is very appropriate since we know so little how to handle this virus. One drug initially uh, last week had some bad news because the trial in China was halted. Uh, they couldn't really enroll and the thought was they weren't seeing much of a signal. However, just today, uh, a few hours ago, Anthony Fauci uh, mentioned that uh, their trial sponsored by the NIH was favorable. I haven't looked at the data. So as an antiviral, this is promising. And I think you'll see some mixed news. Uh, the trials in China have been difficult to recruit patients in part because they're already on a number of medications and so on and so forth. And, and I think when you give an antiviral, it depends how well it works at the stage of illness. And the earlier, the better as we know with influenza. And I think that will be true for this coronavirus infection. So at least uh, stay tuned and uh, hopefully we'll update with some additional information next week. In terms of dealing with the cytokine storm of uh, coronavirus, a number of immunobased strategies are undergoing testing. The Regeneron trial that looked at an anti-IL-6 receptor blocker initially in phase two uh, was deemed uh, not helpful. And this was true for patients who were not yet ill enough to really land uh, with intubation in the ICU. Although people that did have the critical illness in the ICU did have at least a positive trend on subset analysis. Uh, this is an adaptive trial, so it is ongoing to study this drug further in the critical care population. But interestingly, tocilizumab, which is probably the drug that's been used more off-label for this coronavirus, uh, there is at least a press release of a small uh, randomized controlled trial from France that said there are positive results there from a randomized trial. And so we await that information. So there are some glimmers of hope compared to some of the earlier uh, pieces where you had um, uncontrolled uh, trials and very difficult to interpret whether these drugs would be helpful. Lastly, as I've started off this program, uh, you'll hear a lot of different information from the federal government, state governments, uh, other experts as we try to move and open up businesses and so on and so forth and move out of lockdowns. And each state will likely uh, behave differently, uh, some more conservative, others less so. I think when we advise our patient, we do have to almost do an individual analysis. And uh, patients who are quite at risk, um, I think there'll be a false sense of security by many that just because uh, lockdowns are no longer in place, that the virus cannot will be less likely to be acquired. That may not be the case. So uh, for the most vulnerable, I would urge that people remain at home and minimize contacts. Remember, this acquiring this virus is strictly a game of numbers. The more people you see, the more likely you have an opportunity to acquire the virus. If you do venture out, uh, masks are very helpful, uh, both to help prevent spreading the virus to others. Uh, but if there's an opportunity for 
better quality masks, especially for elderly and the very at risk, I might advise that. The uh, N95 variety, for example, and there are even discussions by the CDC and WHO as we get better supplies of uh, more protective masks and so on about whether there will be a change in recommendations. Of course, with supply chain problems, uh, they did not want the general population trying to get N95 masks, which would be needed for first responders. But I think this is something that's under some reconsideration, we shall see. And also, uh, we'll see an increase in COVID-19 cases, there's no doubt. And in fact, some of the states that are liberalizing, it's unclear whether they've really had their peak illnesses in their states. I don't think in good conscience there can really be a large group events, sporting events, stadiums, parades, these sorts of things. Uh, schools and um, universities are very tough uh, aspect of trying to understand how they can go back to uh, norm at this point in time. So uh, I would not advise going to those even if somehow they're allowed to occur. So uh, thanks again for listening. I think Faith, we have some questions. Thank you for those updates, Dr. Allwater. We will now continue to the listener Q&A. To submit questions for Dr. Allwater, please send questions to qa at dkbmed.com. That's Q as in question, A as in answer at dkbmed.com. If we are not able to address your question in this session, we will try to address it in another. The first question asks, is there a standardized questionnaire or non-invasive screening tool that we should be using when screening people? All I see out there are subjective questions about people feeling ill in the past 72 hours and being in contact with someone who's been ill in the past 14 days. Is there anything a little more specific and discriminatory? So uh, the standardized screening, I think with the additional uh, uh, symptom items that I outlined from the Centers for Disease Control, many facilities, including ours, have already incorporated those into a brief questionnaire. Uh, and this is what we do screening everybody that comes into a building, uh, for example. Um, and I, I don't know of anything that's more specific. Anyone that's positive though, I think we will be checking for uh, swab testing. Um, the real question, especially with contact tracing coming up in some states are that even asymptomatic people in a household might also be screened. Thank you. Next question. What is the thinking behind why children seem to not be as vulnerable to this virus? Yeah, there are a number of theories here, and uh, I think I would outline them as follows. Uh, one, uh, children may not yet have a very significant immune response uh, in the sense of making them ill, but they seem to handle the virus very similar to the fact that Epstein-Barr virus, for example, in younger children doesn't usually uh, cause mononucleosis, but becomes a uh, latent virus. Now that's not the case with this coronavirus, but clearly in children, some viruses don't seem to stimulate the vigorous immune responses. Uh, the other aspect of it is that adults have already seen some other coronaviruses and other infections and uh, seem to mount in some a much more vigorous response. And I believe there may be particular signatures either from the virus or from certain hosts that might trigger this intense inflammation, which is really why most people get ill, unless if they have a, you know, a severe immune deficiency. 
for example. Uh, so children luckily and blessedly are uh, not very ill, but they probably are effective transmitters of the virus um, because uh, they're not ill and uh, people are not taking such good care about them. It's another reason why this virus, I think, is so successful. Okay, our next question. Other than the respiratory tract secretions, has COVID-19 virus been found in blood or other bodily fluids? So this virus has been identified, at least the viral RNA in feces, for example. And the significance of this isn't clear. We don't yet know if it's really infectious. I doubt this is a traditional fecal oral uh, spread to this kind of virus, which is how hepatitis A virus is spread although I wouldn't rule it out. That's probably fundamentally the one that I think has been most identified. Uh, some people are wondering whether there's perinatal transmission. Um, I think most people feel this is not routinely the case. Certainly almost all respiratory viruses, including influenza, don't seem to have any predilection for the fetus. Of course, if um, the mother is very ill, uh, that can certainly affect a pregnancy. Uh, but it doesn't look like there's likely transmission through the placenta. Okay, thank you. And this is our last question. Can you please comment on the reports of strokes in COVID-19 patients, whether the clotting is because of direct attack on blood vessels or caused by patient's immune response, and similarly clots being found in veins versus arteries? Yeah, I think there's probably aspects of both. And um, I'm not a hematologist, but there are increasing reports of hypercoagulable states, especially in people in the critical phases of illness. Although there's some question whether it's really at any higher rate than people who are in similar critical phases of illness from other diseases. But I think it's also the intense inflammation is also contributory uh, and you can see troponin leaks and other sort of things that are probably a consequence of this as well. Uh, overall, it's likely uh, combinations of both. Some have advocated in very high risk populations like sickle cell disease that they have high intensity anticoagulation prophylaxis. Uh, but this, I'll also mention that disseminated intravascular coagulation or DIC is another uh, particular attribute that some suffer in critical illness. And of course, this can also lead to paradoxical and abnormal clotting. Thank you again, Dr. Allwater, for those very important updates. As a reminder, to claim CME or CE credit, please complete the evaluation at covid19.dkbmed.com and select today's activity. You'll receive your certificate immediately after. Any questions or issues, feel free to email us at the address listed. Don't forget to access our resource center on covid19.dkbmed.com. You'll find a range of information, including the latest COVID-19 data and statistics, medical society guidelines, and resources in Spanish. To all of our listeners, please be on the lookout for our next activity this Friday featuring Sue Hansen, a clinical nurse specialist at Harbor View Medical Center in Seattle, Washington. We will send out an email when it is available later this week. Any questions for Dr. Allwater or Sue Hansen can be submitted by sending to qa at dkbmed.com. Again, thanks for joining us and thank you for your dedication to patients with COVID-19.
And Dr. Allwater, thank you so much for joining us this week. Uh, thank you, Faith, and thank you all for listening. And I, I wish you all to stay safe and stay well. Mm -hmm.